Today, y'all, we are all in for a treat. Ava's interview was a great direct conversation about privilege, accessibility, and the harms of capitalism. They talk about the common practice of being, if not the only, one a few Black femmes in the workplace made to feel like they needed to suck it up and roll with the punches because they could be replaced in a heartbeat by another Black person. Creating resentment between people who are all struggling for respect, a reasonable workload, and decent pay. Not to mention guilt that you're now thinking so negatively and competitively about other Black people who you want to fight for and raise up. We also get into how access to art museums can be severely limited to people of color because of how they're judged in those spaces, how they can be followed and eyed up just like shopping in a clothing store. Black folks and people of color are creators, creators of things that are wildly lauded and become iconic in the spaces we are constantly pushed out of. What are the questions to push back on this? Not just give us a seat at the table, but to give access and all ways to build our own fucking tables that we are given props for and not calling us fucking resilient. Something to ponder, right? Okay, let's get into it. And I'm Carolyn. And this is Creatives on Deck, an interview style podcast where we talk to creatives who often find themselves working in two worlds in their artistic endeavors that make them thrive, and the service jobs that not only fund their livelihoods, but teach them about people. This week, our guest is Ava Martinez Bond. Ava is a painter and illustrator currently based in Seattle, Washington. Their work explores the distortion of mind, body, and self in a capitalist reality. They use their own personal history and body as a reference to reflect greater themes of loss, grief, and discomfort. Their art style was developed in NYC studio classes, in server hutches, and snowed-in Vermont dormitories. Beyond their own work, Ava is passionate about creating a sustainable future for BIPOC creatives. Ava, thank you so much for being here today. Yes, happy to be here. (laughs) So let's just jump right into this. Let's tell some stories. What is your work history? Yeah, um, I think my job history is what most artists' job history is or what a lot of job people, a lot of uh, creatives can relate to. It's I got out of art school. I was working very low paid intern gigs and I needed to get supplemental work. And like throughout college, I had worked in the service industry just to make some money while going to school. And then in my year off, I had done that. So it was really my only not art related job history. So it was the only work I could really get for a long time. And I started off as a barista. I worked at fancy pizza spots and then after working a pretty abysmal period in Boston, I decided to move to Philadelphia where just things clicked in the service industry for me. So I had started a job at a wine and cheese and beer uh, (laughs) group uh, that a lot of people worked for. Uh, 
<laughs> and they had a bunch of locations all over Philly. So they were always hiring. And <laughs> it was fine dining-ish, fine dining without the pay. <laughs> and a lot of the people that it drew in were kind of like me, like creative they hadn't found their foot in the art world or in whatever creative world they wanted to be in, but they were also really, their brains were always going. So the idea of a job where they had to learn about wine and beer and cheese was all really like interesting, you know? So it was like being with nerds that were ready to be nerdy about something because we all hadn't been in any kind of learning space forever. I, yeah, which was just really exciting after working in like pizza for a long time. And the funny thing about this restaurant group is that almost everybody cuts their teeth in this restaurant group. It feels like if you work with at any restaurant, there's usually like one person that either like stayed there for six months or whatever. But it gives you <laughs> this kind of like opportunity, though, to like hop in and meet a lot of people right away that all love food or coffee, or wine, or beer. Uh, and so I worked there for too long. Uh, <laughs> because I really, you know, I was really loyal to them. I really, really liked the idea of the place. And it took me at least, I think, two years to leave and finally go work somewhere else that also had big issues, mm -hmm. uh, but big promises, too. It's where I also got to meet my amazing friend, Adesola. Yay! Um, <laughs> and it also drew in creative people that had big brains that were like thirsty for community and thirsty for the food that they were serving to like meet their level of interest, I feel like, a yeah, lot of the time. Definitely. Yeah, and so... I worked there for a while and it was fine. And then it was really not fine. Mm. And then I feel like within two or three months of working there, I was like, this place is like the same thing over and over again. I, I don't make enough money. Uh, they're using me for my cool factor, my yeah. packaging, my yeah. layer. Yeah. And they're also like run by wimps. Like I don't want to work here. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up getting another job with another pretty, what is it, known restaurant group in West Philly that was kind of like, you know, we're the like queer, like family wing bar. Mm -hmm. And we've been here forever. And the owner had like an initial name, you know, or it was only like very cool guy. <laughs> <laughs> and it was attached to like a beer bottle shop and there's just like the whole thing right everybody has tattoos mm -hmm. uh, but did they support queer people that work there no did they like do much to like protect us financially no like you know yeah. follow through with anything mm -hmm. of course not but they really loved the look and the vibe and wear <laughs> your the like look. no it's please wear look. your pins and like it's like flair you know mm -hmm. yeah <sighs> Uh, and so I left that job and I remember I made after like four months of working there, like $3,000 altogether. Wow. 
And I remember being like, yeah, like walking with 50 after like an eight hour shift, like just crazy little money. Yeah. And I left that job and they had the nerve. They just remember they had the nerve to be like, how dare you leave us? Excuse me? Yeah. Oh my God. How dare you leave us? We're the coolest beer bar in town. Like, you know, who are you? Yeah, I where is you your were, loyalty? Yeah, I thought you were on our side, you know, kind of mm-hmm. thing. Oh, Jesus. And at that period, I had like an, a family of folks in the industry and I had like really kind of taken it on as identity. And it was like, you know, this whole thing about being a server in Philly that like, knew the beer people, knew the wine people, knew the places to go, became so much a part of my, like, this is who I am and what I do, that I was like, wait, what do I do? Why am I in the industry? What was the whole reason I got into doing this in the first place? Yeah. I don't make art really that often. Like, what am I doing? And then I got a job with a nonprofit that is also kind of infamous now. And it did the same things as I experienced in the restaurant industry. The only difference was I was at a desk, but they made sure to put me in photos as often as they could and like put me to the front. And I remember having to explain why a hot sauce name that was inspired by blackness when nobody black worked there was offensive Mm. and that no one black had even touched it was offensive yeah everyone's like but we're a garden center an urban farm oh that's not jesus Mm. fuck now it sells so well to white people (sighs) in kensington (laughs) on this very divided line jesus (sighs) so you know and then that place it turned out they hadn't been paying sales tax like crazy things crazy (laughs) things yeah and they like it, it just crazy things. Uh, and so I left that place and then I like didn't have a job for a while and worked in uh, for a art collective that Ade and I were a part of as well. Mm. And that kind of went. That didn't go well. No. That <laughs> That's ended. the best way to put that it. Had yeah. to end. <laughs> that had to end. A lot of good intentions at the table but not enough good work. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Seattle. Like it was pretty, uh, (laughs) like I had a period of my life where I got really sick. I I had cancer and I had a breakup and I had two jobs go belly up on me and my house, uh, my landlord was getting a divorce. So my house was gone And suddenly I had to be like, what am I doing here? I don't make art here. My whole identity is about working for service, like serving people that don't value me. I gotta go live my life at some point, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I drove across the country and that was rad and really helped me be like, okay, I'm alone by myself, eight hours in a car. Like, who am I? eight hours in a car and I listened to a lot of music that was made by people that loved me and it just kind of I don't know it's like I it took that road trip to kind of like let me be like okay uh, this is what a fresh start actually means it's like where your self is 
allowed to explore who you are. Yeah. And it was just weird that I was doing it at 27, but I think that's why capitalism sucks. <laughs> not to take it to somewhere that's not emotional, but just to be real. Like, if you don't have enough money to ask that question, to take the time to ask that question, you'll never get an answer. Yeah. I was lucky enough that I was able to work with my family to help support me so that I could move. But that took repairing pretty rough relationships. So that required work and effort. And then I moved to Washington and a couple really important things happened. I was able to live with my sister. So I was able to not pay rent. And for the first time since I was like 18, for like a couple months. And I got a job that was able to use skills with people that were queer and brown. Mm -hmm. And like it's e-commerce. So there's no face to the company. So they can't put me in a picture really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, we, you, we, we can't, there's no ROI. There's no return on that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I got to work with people that are like, okay, cool. So what are you good at? What do you want to be better at? And they could afford to take the risk on me to say, yeah, okay, sure. Like, you want to be a copywriter? You think you got all this stuff? Then let's see how it performs and let's see it grow. And it, it worked out that it did well. And so now I'm like, what, three or four years out of the industry? Wow. Something like that. But the identity of Philly will always be a service town to me. Mm -hmm. It'll always be an industry town to me. Mm -hmm. That's like, it's like I know that city from the underbelly up. Like yeah. the nighttime life, Philly is the Philly to me. Yeah. Yes, definitely. So like this difference of being a part of things that are happening in the daytime, I don't, it's just, uh, it's a whole other like, if you're not a part of it, you really don't know the lens on it, I guess. Yeah. How I feel about it. I mean, that was a long answer. <laughs> no, that was that was that was great. That was wonderful. Um, you and I talk about this a lot too with boundaries that like help you figure out the kind of shit you were not going to fucking deal with anymore. They value you besides like, hey, they're brown. We can put them in front, and that'll bring some eyeballs on here and make us like have some kind of coolness to it and some shit like that. Yeah, my parents are both former civil rights people. And when mm -hmm. I say civil rights people, I mean, like, they were part of those movements when they were young, and they didn't really carry that into maybe their main career, but, like, it's shaped who they are. Mm -hmm. And I kind of always grew up with the knowledge that the business world, any money exchange, people don't matter that much. Mm -hmm. In capitalism, people are pieces you move around to get something to get more of something mm. or to get less of something. Mm -hmm. It's like very A to B math, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're aware that being a person of color that can be easily used mm -hmm. has value in marketing, mm -hmm. then you can kind of start to smell like, oh, you don't want to give me a manager shift, but you do want me to work all of the nights that important people are here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
or you do want me to work when the camera is going to be here mm-hmm. and you want me to wear that red dress or you know you want to have your arm around me but you you I we don't talk we've never mm-hmm. talked mm-hmm. but you're mean to me actually you're kind of aggressive <laughs> But mm-hmm. because there's somebody here that you want to make a good impression on, you're like really ready to talk to me for five minutes. Yes. You know, it's, I think that, I guess my point is, I think that my parents knowing that and sharing that with us at a young age, that people were always going to want to take more than what we were going to want to give mm-hmm. made me inherently suspicious. Mm-hmm. And then working in theater <laughs> where you know, I mean, I think I heard some of the craziest things I've ever heard. I literally was at this, it was the last show I ever worked actually with the last female director I ever worked with. And I, when I say female, she was also a white woman. And it's just really important for me to be clear. She, she inhabited <laughs> boomer white woman to a level in that you're like, wow, like not everybody who voted for Obama likes black people. (laughs) Um, she, She literally pointed at me in a room full of grad students she was teaching and said, I didn't want, I, and I go by they, them pronouns. So this is a whole other period of my life, but she, I don't want her here, but you know, a grant paid for her. And I'm sure something good will come out of it. Oh, my God. And that's how I work. That's because I insist we have someone here who's not white. And in a room for like 10 people. Yeah, she's so blatant, just like outright with it. Oh, my God, who I aspired to be. Oh, man. Like, I wanted to go to grad school so badly. So, you know, after you experience stuff like that in that range where you're like, wow, people will go to that length of like, I'm in my own world. What I do is right. They Mm -hmm. self validating Mm -hmm. that, of course, a restaurant owner is going to be like, let's hire this selective brown people. Let's Mm -hmm. let's only have this many. Let's have them work these shifts. And when they're difficult, let's fire them mm-hmm. because there's somebody else that's going to need a job that will totally fit that role. Yeah. Uh, you know, these are some of the highest paid people in their field. Like these people make a lot of money too. Yeah. Uh, but, but they're able to, they, they live in worlds that validate them so much that they feel like they can make crazy posts. Mm-hmm. about fried chicken mm-hmm. or they feel like they can make they can point to people in a room full of other people and say I don't like them it's crazy making so um, I think that it's easier actually to trust your instinct mm-hmm. and what we've been taught for so long to like really kind of question all that shit because we've been constantly gaslit into like what you just said of being like well, if you don't do the shit, we're going to fire you. And then some just get someone else that looks just like you. Because, you know, I know like as a black person, we're always taught, got to work twice as hard. And then if you're not working hard enough, another black person going to come on, swoop on in. That there's one spot 
Yeah, just for and, just and that us. we're versus each other all the time yes. for that one spot. We're all competing for it. Exactly. And when I think about the amount of damage that's done to my relationships with potential people I could have worked with and created mm. beautiful art with, mm. Mm. of course I feel loss. Mm. So I think, oh, whew, sorry guys, let me collect myself. It's all good. Yeah. <sighs> Cancer, cancer, in our feelings. It's true. And feel also, just like, deeply. You know, I also feel like it's rare to like be honest that this stuff does hurt. It accumulates. Yeah, mm-hmm. because we've been Ooh. also been taught, you know, especially when you're in the industry, like suck that shit up. Like you're not allowed to have that connected means you're not strong enough to be in the industry it means you know your worthiness is just like if you can't stand with the boys or some shit if you can't oh my gosh if you can't stand someone screaming in your face mm-hmm. over a mistake yep. you know you're lesser than human mm-hmm. I, I i mean it's very personal yeah and it drills and it's purposefully purposeful it's all has an intention to make you feel smaller and lesser so that you will behave mm-hmm. you will do as told you will not think you will not be present yeah. and and that's actually you know not to like bring it back to my art but that's why so much of my art focuses on that mm-hmm. because ultimately i don't want to make work just about myself mm-hmm. i want to make work about what I see happening, but not talked about. Mm-hmm. And I think it's most powerful when people can look at a piece and say, ah, like, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. And I don't give myself space to get this part of me or whatever, to acknowledge that this was taken or to acknowledge that this was separated. I think that's a part of actually like healing weirdly enough. Like if you Mm. can make space for that process to acknowledge like the damages that people have done to you in capitalism Mm. and being treated like chattel because outside of race, this is one of those things that bonds us in the service industry is that we are all treated lesser because we are in service and that is a, the expectation of our role in service mm-hmm. is that we also absorb that we are lesser. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So of course, you know, the hottest chef in town is going to scream at you over hippie cheese <laughs> because you don't know the difference between, I'm sorry, reclette and an aged cheddar on a plate because, you know, I got five hours of sleep last night, dude. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah, that sent me on a whole thing. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, thank God for editing. <laughs> <laughs> so, having lived in multiple cities, especially cities like Boston and Seattle, where the cost of living can be really high. What was service work like comparatively? And did you end up having a service job when you first moved to Seattle? Or have you been doing marketing work the whole time? When I moved there, I so 
in that period, I was able to really heal the relationship with my sister when I was in Philly right before I moved. And mm-hmm. intergenerational trauma we had to work through, everything had to stop. Like everything had to stop. It was just really important work. Mm-hmm. And so included in that was, and I remember a therapist I had at the time, the first black therapist I ever had, and the only therapist that changed my life, mm-hmm. <laughs> said, stop, don't go do a service job. Mm-hmm. Like you've got other work going on. Mm-hmm. And so I I didn't work in the service industry, which I think is a really important thing to one note here but also the reason I didn't was because I was able to take the time to find other options mm. you know I think it took me like five months because nobody wants somebody that's got years and years and years of service industry work mm. yeah. and only one six-month job of working as an admin coordinator role like that you're not going to get a livable wage doing that in Seattle Mm -hmm. unless you are the best admin coordinator out there. (laughs) Like that, I guess you can work for Bezos or something, but like (laughs) that is not most of the jobs. But I will say in terms of the major differences, Seattle gave me healthcare the first day I got there. Oh, wow. And I had a small health scare where I needed to get a breast exam and I paid nothing for it. Wow. And I went to one of the nicest hospitals in Seattle. That's wild. And I was treated amazingly <laughs> the entire time, which is not my experience of yeah. my healthcare in Philly. No. <laughs> um, and so access to that really big game changer I was also able to find housing that was $600 a month that was really nice and safe. Wow. And I was able to, my job was like able to let me work from home sometimes when like my mental health wasn't great. Even though I didn't make a ton of money when I first started, I was able to get allowances that allowed me to be a person, Mm -hmm. which was a better quality of life. Mm -hmm. Versus Boston, where I was in a pressure cooker environment. You know, theater really is like a high stress environment because everyone's competing all the time for really select roles for people that especially generally don't leave those roles for years and years and years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And your schedule is crazy. I mean, you're working like multiple shows at once if you're going to make a living If you're not going to make a living, you're going to work two restaurant jobs and get a $500 stipend. And that's like, you're one of the highest paid interns, you know, like Mm, you will, you will never hear the end of it, (laughs) uh, how well you are treated and you have to fork over a lot of your own money. You know, you got to dress nice. You got to do this. You got to do that. Mm. And that's true in the industry too, right? You can't get by unless you look a certain way. Mm-hmm. and rock a, rock a look it will give you more money like mm. that's just true mm-hmm. I would say Boston I never really figured out money I mean if surviving and when I say surviving I really mean like not spending your money mm-hmm. <laughs> like and I remember rent there was I think 
600 but for like a closet basically mm-hmm. mm. a hallway i'd share it with three other guys that were like very much hetero men mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. to put it in a way <laughs> um, and you know in boston where it's cold yeah. so uh, utilities are high for gas uh your car yeah. you have to spend money on your car all the time yeah definitely i don't think i know what boston's like from the perspective of somebody that's made a livable wage yeah versus Philly, where I actually feel like I do know what Philly's like, even though most of the time there I would be called the working poor, mm. just simply because my rent was $400. Yeah. And I was living in a community that was supporting one another mm-hmm. by sharing provisions and things like that. Mm-hmm. But one thing that has really taught me the two different cities is that, you know, Seattle at least has more money put toward less people. Hmm. And when I say less people, I just mean less population, Mm. which means that compared to a place like Philly, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really going to be able to provide people like a really some great options right off the bat, like healthcare and things like that. Mm -hmm. But like in a place like Boston, where they instead of like investing that money back into the community, they invest it back into those larger institutions like education, Harvard, I, you know, mm-hmm. um, not education. <laughs> Let me be clear. <laughs> like Harvard has a weird product they want to make, or like if this actually happened, they gave a bunch of money to MIT to fix gentrification in a neighborhood that they were literally like miles from. I mean, almost like an hour drive from. Wow. Whereas there is a group of people in Roxbury that have been devoted community members trying to get finances and support for really well thought out products and projects. Like, no, no, MIT, they don't need you. (laughs) You don't actually have it. They got it. (laughs) This feels like Philly fighting COVID all over again. Am I wrong? Because this is what it feels like. It feels like yeah. Philly fighting COVID all over again. Oh my God. It's like somebody in Philly went, and he's a real nice guy. Yes. He's so yes. nice. Have you hung with this guy? Because we do every weekend. That's not a problem, right? That's not an issue. So I want to actually talk about what like your dream is for like your future self. And what you want, because I mean, yes, you are working at a space that you feel more valued and you don't feel like the things you mentioned earlier where you just feel like a prop, like a tool. But yeah, I wanted to also talk about what you dream for yourself in the future and for your community as you move forward with like the knowledge that you have now from working at those fucked up places. I think that what those fucked up places taught me mm-hmm. were some truths that luckily I don't have to question anymore. Mm. Like that's energy saved and put somewhere else, that questioning. And so with that extra energy, Mm -hmm. right? Well, I guess with that extra energy, I've really put it into my confidence that I can do things that I want to do and that Mm. there is a space for me to take up. And so the big struggle I feel like I always have as like a person that's got lots of different like areas of interest is like, Mm -hmm. okay, so how do you 
consolidate those areas of interest. If I had to be a painter all day, I would get bored. If I have to be a business person all day, I would get bored. Mm-hmm. So my real fantasy is to create more opportunities for creatives by reimagining the relationship between marketing and art. Mm. And instead of giving people that have the money, all the power, Mm -hmm. acknowledging that the people and the makers that are actually doing the work that gets things bought, that are giving your brand clout, Mm -hmm. they actually have, the creator actually has way more power than we're used to them having than we're taught that we have, right? Mm -hmm. And so really, I'd like to create a business that is um, either marketing, consulting, that focuses on connecting artists and businesses, but then making sure the artist is the more important piece Mm -hmm. than what the business wants at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. which is really not capitalism. (laughs) You know, it's (laughs) sorry. I, you're going to make money no matter what. Like, I think that there's just an understanding that you have once you start to work with like a bigger numbers that if you invest in something, a certain amount, you are always going to get something back, whether it's um, the big billion dollar thing you thought, or whether it's a million dollar thing you thought, but Mm -hmm. the really established brand They have so much more to play with. The risk that they take on is so little that if we're able to create a system of checks and balances, the artist actually has an opportunity to benefit from their capitalist power, which is not true right now because there's no protection for the artist when they're getting in those relationships with major businesses and being held up in some commercial as uh, an ideal that is now accepted by X giant brand, you know? If we're able to add a third party in there, which I think there are enough marketing professionals that are working for other agencies or working for nonprofits who don't have the kind of control and power and decision-making power that they should, that there's lots of people ready to help reshape that relationship. And so I think it's, um, you know, what's the dream? Um, Part marketing agency, part space to talk about how art and marketing are inherently related. They're never Mm -hmm. going to uncouple. They're only Mm -hmm. going to get closer. Mm -hmm. And some sort of artist agency, you know, but that's reimagining all of those institutions into something that really still prioritizes the artist. Mm -hmm. But I actually don't think it's that hard. I don't know. It doesn't sound that hard. It sounds like a lot. Of, it sounds like a lot of language. It sounds like a lot of like being able to go into meetings and have conversations about numbers. But uh, people do that all the time. And mm-hmm. uh, what I've learned in my job is it's actually not that big of a deal. It's just, and the information is out there to be able to share this idea with people that are ready to invest in black and brown communities people that are ready to invest in creators that are femme and non-binary and queer. They're already mm-hmm. out there with their money ready to make up for whatever things they did to earn that money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why don't we just give it to the right people? Yeah, exactly. I like it. Yeah. I, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's what? too easy. It's too, no, no. 
This other fantasy I have is to create a co-op pot farms that are also places for innovation for greater agriculture resources so that we can really share the cash crop that is cannabis and put it to work for all the other crops we need to eat too. Mm -hmm. And I tell people this idea and they're like, how in the world would you ever do that? (laughs) And I'm like, investors and then walking into that room like every other white man does all the time with a crazy idea yeah and say yeah uh, and be honest Mm -hmm. because it's all there you know yeah Yeah. i wanted to shift into discussing more about your art Ah, same same go ahead i wanted to talk about how you describe that your art is about um the cult of femme and what that means and what that entails for your art. I think that in whether I like it or not, I create thinking about the femme experience and the female experience. And I create with my best friends in my own head who happen to be femme, which priestesses and priesti, if you will. Mm. And I know that all of the work that I'm the most proud of has been a raw reflection of that. Not one that is curated to make someone understand it. Mm -hmm. If I spend too much time trying to translate it for what I think is ultimately like a male gaze preference, Mm -hmm. I've totally alienated the voices in my head and the people that I love and the people ultimately that I like make work for Mm. and which is kind of a dangerous thing to be like yeah I'm going to be okay with the fact that people won't connect to my art Mm -hmm. that's fine my work is not for everyone actually my work is generally processing really sacred private experiences with other people Mm. that either share those experiences or share that community and I think that often The idea of femme is labeled as like pink and glitter. Mm -hmm. And I would say almost like a, like watered down to the like bimbo core aesthetic, which I really appreciate as a, as a, (laughs) as a community of people out there. Um, And no, and have absolute love for, Mm -hmm. but that's just not the entirety of the femme aesthetic like I'm just think looking at all of our spaces right now and like your space Carolyn is like all patterns and like <laughs> Adesola you're rocking some bisexual vibes with the blue on one side and the purple on the other <laughs> side like you know it's just great and versus like you know I'm doing my standard I can't handle too many images around me thing <laughs> for me it's about reflecting the spectrum of what femme is mm-hmm. as well as honoring it and connecting with it and and acknowledging that it is so powerful we try to discredit it in mainstream media all the time because mm. I remember a time right like I remember in middle school when we were like all thinking about sex and I remember being like femme girly it, it doesn't fit me mm. but it's the only thing I can cling to mm-hmm. so I I love it and I hate it yes and I both attracted to it in others and attracted to it in myself and revolted by it at the yes. same time. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's just because it's a, it's not, it's a label that we have to um, 
femme is a thing that I think femme people need to, they need to wrestle with it and then wear it with a lot of pride. Mm-hmm. And then we need to encourage people we see that are really masculine who like don't treat their inner femme truth because everybody has femme within them. Mm-hmm. To We need to encourage them to check it, man. Like it's in there inside you. Yeah. I wanted to talk about how, because we've danced around capitalism mm-hmm. this whole time. So yes. <laughs> I wanted to devote a little bit of direct time to the idea of capitalism and community Mm -hmm. and how you came to understand how these two things exist, how they coexist, how they affect each other, and how your experiences in work and creativity impacted your opinion on both of those things. I, I come from a pretty affluent family. My dad worked as a businessman in the 80s, 90s, and early aughts. And this does not discredit his work, but was often tokenized and held up as an example mm-hmm. of diversity that didn't exist. Let, let's, let's finish that sentence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I chose to be, nope, that's not true. I am an artist whether I want to be an artist. There's nothing I can do about it. And I remember growing up with the idea that I was never going to survive. Like my parents were pretty straight up with me about it, that, you know, that is not a job that will support you. And I don't know how you are going to be successful in that arena because it's all about what you look like it's all you know art is something for rich white kids that's Mm -hmm. not something for us and we got this work very hard we work very hard for what we have Mm -hmm. and you need to keep adding to this Mm -hmm. you need to make us bigger stronger with your work you need to be rich too (laughs) basically Mm -hmm. was the like big Mm -hmm. message And, you know, even though my family was able to give me great educational opportunities, you know, they were able to make sure that I was able to travel and see some beautiful places. You know, I also was never like crazy wealthy. I was never like the kids that had the like helicopter. (laughs) I went to school with kids that had the helicopter. Oh, damn. And I, you know, and I, even though I was there with some sort of like with most of the time with a a grant added on to it. Mm. And that's what made it affordable for us is, you know, I was really, I had like mega wealth for the first time showed to me in college and in high school. Mm. And I remember just thinking those, these people might have access to a lot of stuff. Mm. And it's meant that they know a lot more about these really superficial things than I do but they're really shitty people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like they're really not that funny. Like they're, and they're really also not that interesting. And when they talk, they talk a lot about themselves. Like, you know, it's really um, a bubble. You, you're, you're, I was able to notice how it's just this own self feeding mm. thing. And like how intentions is real. 
or whatever. Yeah. A little bit. It, it has like, it's like, uh, or I never watched this show. I've only ever seen um, memes about it, uh, which is a very 2021 millennial. Uh, Are you about to say Gossip Girl? Because yep. Yes. I've never seen it, but I do know that Gossip Girl's not that wrong. Like there are things that it's like blown up about. Like I don't think yeah. everybody's wearing Carolina Herrera. But so you know the value of wealth from what my parents had taught me changed when I really met very wealthy people. Yeah, and then I got out of college and, and I wasn't able to afford anything, and my parents weren't able to support me financially. So the theory was tested, like, can I be rich <laughs> right out the gate? You know, uh, I have had family who their first job was $100,000 a year. Mm. That was their first job right out of college. And that's, you know, what I want to say. A lot of like Yale business grads, like they're making $100,000 out the gate, $150,000 out the gate. Mm. When somebody is making $150,000 at 20 years old, 22 years old, you will never catch up to them financially if yeah. you are making $15 an hour at 18. Mm. You'll never catch up. Like <laughs> it's yeah. impossible. You know. And so I understood uh, through my own real struggle to survive right out of school that it was set up for me to fail. <laughs> so then, you know, you're able to say, why is it, why is the world set up so that I fail? And it's, how did that person get a hundred thousand dollars so quickly? Mm -hmm. Like, why is that job so much more valuable than my job? Oh my gosh. And then you start to kind of do the math like, oh, service. Oh, slavery. Oh, you know, it, 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 it's actually, um, I think that once you start to see capitalism, you can't stop seeing it. You see it everywhere, which is one of the reasons it's in my art is because we don't acknowledge the way that we internalize capitalism in ourselves. And it, it dictates how we value ourselves. Think about how productive were you this week? You know, that is a question about your capitalist value mm -hmm. at core. How much do you contribute? Mm -hmm. And so then I think that once I really, that was like my early 20s. And then, you know, it's just the rage goes on. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, cue the maracas. Mm -hmm. I'm like, and it adds up. Like, not being able to afford the dentist I remember having my tooth break on a brunch shift. Oh my God. And I finished the shift. And I literally finished the shift because if I didn't finish that shift, how was I going to afford for paying my tooth? Mm. So I'm literally in the shift being like, mm. <laughs> just smiling with my whole yeah, you know, so this is how we're doing, like trying to keep the smallest mouth possible. Oh, oh my God. That's capitalism, though. That's not humanity. Hmm. Right? Like, we're all cringing about that because that's unnatural. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, and so people talk about capitalism as like something that has risen us from other places, and it absolutely <laughs> hasn't. What it's done is it's risen a very small percentage of the population and defined others as chattel 
this is inherent to our country's identity. Yeah. And we don't want to look at it mm-hmm. or acknowledge that it is working around us all the time. And we're not able to, and sorry, on, on the element of joy, we are not able to acknowledge that when we do have pieces of joy and moments of freedom in our life, that those are moments where we truly do win against a greater thing. Mm-hmm. It, and, and revolution does exist all the time. We just don't appreciate it and value it the way that we should mm-hmm. to give it more power to take over some of these other things mm-hmm. that don't. Joy is revolution, right? Amen. And that perfectly ends our interview with Ava. You can find their art at 3VAMADE. That's at Ava Made. And all other things life and new puppy related at Walker Lived on Instagram. Music today was provided by Full Bush. You can find Creatives on Deck on any podcast streaming platform and on Instagram at Creatives on Deck. Got a question? Send us an email. Creativesondeck at gmail.com. See y'all next week. Ah!